This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Good afternoon and welcome to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. In the aftermath of last week's horrific mass shooting in Toronto's Greek town, victims, witnesses, and an entire city grieves. We speak with a psychologist about recovery from trauma. It's not a one-size-fits-all process. And important new details on the gender gap when it comes to heart disease. I speak with the lead Canadian author of an important study on heart failure. But first, here are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. There's no question the Zoomer generation won the lottery when it comes to real estate. After enjoying the benefit of one of the biggest property price increases in the country's history, REMAX reports they're driving up the cost of a country retreat. Prices of ski chalets, waterfront cottages and other vacation properties jumped 13% across the country in the last year. REMAX says baby boomers are taking equity out of their primary homes and buying second homes or buying recreational property to retire at full-time. Finding Alzheimer's patients for experimental drugs in the U.S. is becoming almost impossible. Of the 37.5 million in the right age group, the number drops dramatically when volunteers either drop out or don't meet the screening requirements. It leaves just 25,000 potential participants for the over 100 pharmaceutical trials now underway. Scientists say the irony is science has never been more promising. Britain's Supreme Court has rejected an appeal from a woman seeking a divorce from her husband of 40 years, ending a three-year legal battle and heaping pressure on lawmakers to overhaul divorce law in England and Wales. 68-year-old Teeny Owens first filed a petition to divorce her 80-year-old husband, Hugh, when they separated in 2015, but he objected to the split. Under British law, courts cannot grant a quick divorce unless a husband or wife cites adultery, unreasonable behavior, or desertion. When that's not the case, if one partner objects, the couple must live apart for five years before being granted a divorce. It means Ms. Owens has to wait until 2020, which has many arguing that those divorce laws are archaic. One of the last surviving female Spitfire pilots from World War II has died at the age of 101. Mary Ellis was born in England in 1917 and was one of a number of women trained to fly the planes. She recalled that back in the 1940s, men simply didn't believe women could or should fly and would always ask where the pilot was when she delivered a Spitfire. After the war, Ellis was transferred to the Royal Air Force and was one of the first women to fly Britain's first jet fighter. In 2016, she published her autobiography. (laughs) 
I'm Libby Zneimer, and those are your Zoomer headlines from around the world. The city is still reeling following last week's random mass shooting in Toronto's Greektown. But some people are more vulnerable to suffering long-term trauma. I spoke to Toronto psychologist Dr. Norman Farb about the role that personality plays in recovery. It's very hard to anticipate who's going to have a strong reaction to a traumatic event like the shootings on the Danforth. And actually, even just hearing about the shootings or watching footage for some people can be enough to trigger that sort of trauma. As a city, as a culture, we're just still trying to unpack and process what happened. And why is it so hard to figure out who will have a harder time with it? Are, are there not certain risk factors? The most obvious risk factor for having an exaggerated or above normal response to trauma is having a trauma history oneself. So if you come from a background where you often have felt unsafe and that your life is in danger, there's a learned set of survival skills that are attached to that that get triggered um, by these sorts of events. And, you know, no one's life is, is completely free of trauma, but there's quite a big spectrum as to how much adversity each of us has had to encounter. So I would say that would be the number one predictor. Uh, and then there's a, a series of other predictors as well, which can range from your genetics, so how sort of emotionally volatile you might be, you might come from your genes or early upbringing, all the way down to sort of mental interpretive habits or framework. So if one tends to see the world as an unsafe place, feeds right into that belief system, whereas someone who might be more of a chronic optimist is less likely to process these events as as deeply as threatening to themselves. If I go through a traumatic event thinking, oh, well, this is just confirmed for me that I'm really helpless, or I don't think well on my feet, and I'm the kind of person who just is not going to recover well, I'm actually probably going to be more vulnerable down in the future. Whereas if I surprise myself or find that I am able to sort of integrate what happened and feel a little bit wiser or more mature for it, um, I may actually be much more resilient in the future. And I really think if I tried to pin it down on what, what that sort of pivot point is, it's whether people are able to take a traumatic event and move through stages of realizing that they have gotten through the event relatively safely, that they're able to sort of turn towards and understand the feelings that they were having. And now there's this ability or opportunity to potentially grow. Like, what can I learn from this? And this isn't going to happen, you know, an hour after the trauma, but in the weeks and months that follow, I think that's a great predictor of people sort of opening up and staying more engaged in the world as opposed to trying to protect themselves from the world. This feeling of, I'm going to shut down taking in new information or exploring new opportunities in the face of trauma, I think is as a recipe for actually becoming more vulnerable in the future. How does the randomness play into whether people feel that they can grow from it? Yeah, it's it's a wonderful question. I I think that the randomness speaks to our feelings of agency or control. And when there's really no good reason for an event happening, like there's no way to see it coming, no way to protect yourself ahead of time, it it robs us of that sense of agency. And in the absence of agency, you know, the world seems like a, it can seem like a chaotic and unsafe place. So I think the randomness definitely undermines people's feelings of confidence that they understand or have control in the world can kind of, again, go off in different directions. People could say, well, it's random, and I'll look at this in a kind of more rational statistical sense, and if it's random and it happens, you know, once to every million people, I'm actually quite safe. But many other people might say, it's random, and therefore there's no way to predict this if this is happening, and so none of us are safe. And so both of these things are actually true, right? None of us are completely safe. The probability that this could happen, that it applies to every single one of us, and the probability is actually quite small. The most important thing is to be engaged in taking in new information from the world. So I think that 
even optimism, thinking everything is always going to be fine no matter what, is a bit pathological. Right? Like, it's not that helpful if you've suffered a loss and everyone says, oh, everything's fine, you know, just look on the bright side. Like, that's not really especially helpful. But there is a lot of evidence that optimism helps buffer people against catastrophizing. There are a lot of vigils, memorial services, memorials on the street, counseling. How important are all those things in trying to move past this? I think what's absolutely critical in the face of a trauma is restoring a sense of basic safety and community is a big part of that. And so knowing that even though one person may have completely disrupted the sense of safety of millions of people, seeing many other people come out to support each other and to also help process um, the emotions. And sometimes you almost need like permission to grieve, but you see other people grieving that can help potentiate that emotional expression, which can be really healthy. So I think it's one way that people can develop support structures uh, for themselves. It's not the only way. You know, speaking to family or mental health professionals, people you trust and think have your best interest at heart is another really great resource. And even just taking some time personally to try to understand one's own idiosyncratic reactions to events, I think is really important. But the vigils are like a, a signpost. Right? It's like, if you don't know where else to turn, here's somewhere where you can go, where other people who are probably grappling with the same feelings you are, are going to show up. And, and the goal is really recognition of our shared humanity and trying to support each other. So I think as resources like that, uh, they're wonderful. And what else should people do? The best thing people can do is to take just a bit of time out of their day to reflect on really how they're doing in the face of any major traumatic event, including the shooting on the Danforth, and to understand sort of at what phase uh, of processing or integrating the experience they might be at. Okay. Dr. Norman Farb, thanks so much. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. That was psychologist Dr. Norman Farb from the University of Toronto. I'm Libby Zneimer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, important news about women and heart disease. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. A new Canadian study confirms what previous research reveals. Women are more likely than men to die from heart failure. But this latest groundbreaking study highlights a new key piece of news. Heart disease affects women and men differently, and that is behind the higher mortality rates. Dr. Louise Sun is the lead author, and we reached her at the University of Ottawa Heart Institute so-called classical symptoms of heart disease have been described more often in men compared to women. And the problem here is uh, the lack of awareness that heart disease can affect women equally and uh, have even deadlier consequences in women. So certainly awareness is the first problem in this picture. What did you find when it comes to the impact of heart failure on women? We conducted a population-based study using data at the uh, Clinical Evaluative Sciences, and uh, what we found here was that the rates of deaths within a year of being diagnosed with heart failure was higher in women compared to men. And the other concerning finding here was that the rates of hospitalizations subsequent to the heart failure diagnosis was going up in women but going down in men. Why do you think that is? 
women would have atypical presentation for heart disease. So what this means is that they may not seek medical attention in a timely uh, fashion. So that could lead to delayed diagnosis, delayed treatment, or even missed diagnosis or treatment. Another factor here is that currently clinical trials are not well represented by women. And so I would say a majority of uh, participants in our cardiovascular clinical trials are men, and therefore the medications and devices being trialed would uh, largely be known to be beneficial in men, but not necessarily in women. Third of all, women may not be prescribed the full range of um, medications that could be good for, for their heart failure condition. Isn't there an issue where men and women tend to get different types of heart failure? That's uh, very true, and I think that certainly factors into the differences in outcomes between men and women. So men are more likely to have the type of heart failure with reduced pumping function of the heart, whereas women are more likely to have the kind of heart failure with uh, what they call preserved or normal pumping function of the heart. And so that certainly would lead to a uh, difference in detection of heart failure as well in both sexes. Classically, this type of heart failure that's more predominant in women used to be called diastolic heart failure, so just meaning the heart is very stiff. A few factors sort of play into the formation of this disease. So number one, old age, uh, number two, being female, and number three, having chronically had diseases such as high blood pressure, diabetes, and being overweight. The type of heart failure that affects men predominantly is uh, what you call heart failure with reduced ejection or pumping function of the heart. So there are actually several medications that have been proven to be effective in treating this condition, whereas medications to treat this stiff heart or this preserved pumping function type of heart failure that's found mostly in women, there are no known uh, medications that are perfectly effective for this condition. The average length of uh, survival after being diagnosed with heart failure is about five years, and uh, that's a general number for uh, both sexes, regardless of type of heart failure. And is there anything that you want to see change as a result of this study? The primary purpose of this piece is to increase awareness of the importance of sex differences in heart disease presentation and sex differences in the outcomes of patients with heart failure. Subsequent to this, we would like to uh, do more research looking at how to explain those observed differences. So things like, are there differences in health-seeking behavior between men and women? Are there differences in their response to medical and device therapy? And lastly, is our healthcare system doing a good enough job? Okay. Louise Sun, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks very much. That was Dr. Louise Sun, lead author of the study. I'm Libby Snymer, and this is the Zoomer Week in Review. Coming up, the one and only Mick Jagger celebrates a birthday. You're listening to the Zoomer Week in Review, brought to you by CARP, a new vision of aging. Support CARP with your membership today. Visit carp.ca. Welcome back to the Zoomer Week in Review, all things Zoomer worldwide. I'm Libby Snymer. It's time for your International Arts Date Book. Tips for those of you who are jetting around the world. Here's Jane Brown. The future of modern opera is on display at London, England's Tete-a-Tete Festival. Hey! 
That's Bishi from The Good Immigrant, which kicked off the festivities. Many festival events are free of charge. Until August 30th, you can enjoy over 200 live performances as the Salzburg Music Festival celebrates its 98th year. In Brisbane, Australia. I feel the earth move under my King's Beautiful runs until September 2nd at the Queensland Performing Arts Center. And in New Haven, Connecticut, the Yale University Art Gallery is presenting discoveries from Leonardo da Vinci's virtually unknown period when he apprenticed with sculptor, painter, and goldsmith Andrea del Verrocchio in the late 1400s. I'm Jane Brown, and that's the International Arts Datebook. This week, the one and only Mick Jagger celebrated his 75th birthday. Born July 26, 1943, Jagger became known as the charismatic frontman of the Rolling Stones for over five decades. The Stones have released a staggering 30 studio albums and 120 singles. Here's Mick Jagger and the Rolling Stones with Ruby Tuesday. She would never say where she came from. That was the Rolling Stones with Ruby Tuesday. Frontman Mick Jagger celebrated his 75th birthday this week. And that brings us to the end of this week's edition of the Zoomer Week in Review. I'm Libby Zneimer. Be sure to come back next week to stay up to date with all things Zoomer worldwide. You've been listening to the Zoomer Week in Review. Produced by MZ Media Limited. Executive producer Moses Zneimer. Produced by Christine Ross, Michelle Saunders, Paul Thomas, and Andre Lowy. This has been an exclusive podcast of the Zoomer Week in Review, heard every Sunday at noon on Zoomer Radio. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.